0: to John's Gospel, John's Gospel in chapter 16. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse number eight specifically, Jesus gives us these words to describe the other part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says these words, and when he comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, who he refers to as the spirit of truth, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness And judgment. When the Spirit of God comes, one of His ministries in our lives and in the world is to convict us of something called sin. Sin is this tendency we have in our lives to do things that are contrary to the character of God and His commands. And every single one of us has buried within us a sin nature. This predisposition to rebel against God's character and his commands. And the Bible teaches us clearly that it's our sin that separates us in relationship to God. Not that God doesn't want to have a relationship with us. It is that we, in our sinfulness, have chosen to walk away from the only one who can heal us inside and out and transform us forever and for eternity. Now, none of us likes talking about our sin though we love talking about everyone else's sin. How many are professionals at finding fault in everyone else? You can size them up easily. All you gotta do is just to see the outfit they're wearing and you know everything that's wrong with them. How many are professionals at that, right? Many of us are, but when it comes to the spotlight of the Spirit of God on our own sin, we push back against that. We don't like when Scripture tells us that all have sinned, including you, and falling short of the glory of God. And we certainly don't like when a preacher stands up with an open Bible and tells us that. But to neglect to tell you that your soul is afflicted with a sickness called sin is the equivalent of a doctor who does an assessment on you physically and discovers a terminal, deadly disease and neglects to inform you about it. If I'm sick and I go to see my doctor, I want to know that I'm sick. How many are with me? If you go to your doctor and they do an assessment on you, how many want to know with accuracy the results of that? Amen? False assurance does us no good when it comes to our physical health, and false assurance does us no good when it comes to our spiritual health. Because one day, you're going to have to stand before a holy God. And when he asks you, on what basis should I let you into my heaven? I want you to be able to have an accurate response. And it won't be on the basis of your resume, your actions, or your track record, because again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now you may ask, Pastor Chris, why do you bring this up? Well, today we're gonna look at the good news. The good news of the gospel as we continue Romans and our study in the book of Romans. And as we go into Romans chapter 7, and I want you to go there with me, Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at some verses in which Paul is going to give us good news at the end. But in order for good news to be good, we must first understand the bad news. No one accepts a treatment plan from a doctor until you first accept the diagnosis of the sickness. Today, what the Apostle Paul is going to do in a brilliant, poetic, and powerful way is give give us a glimpse Into his own life, into his own struggle with sin. And I believe that as he pulls back the mirror, as he bears his own soul, as he stands before us not only in his current time, but now thousands of years later, totally vulnerable, totally transparent, we're all going to be able to identify with Paul, with his struggle, with his dilemma, because it's our struggle and our dilemma. And as we experience the depths of his despair, we're going to experience not only that, but the freedom that comes in Christ. Paul, picking up his theme in verse 7 of chapter 7, has been talking to the people of the church in Rome about the difference between living in Christ and living under the law. You see, every single one of them knew that the world was broken. How many agree with me that the world is broken? You don't even have to be a Christian to agree with that. Even atheists will tell you there's something fundamentally flawed with the world around us. There's evil, there's wars, there's divisions, there's backbiting. No one seems to be faithful, promise keepers. No one seems to be able to offer to us the goodness that we desire. And we all desire goodness. We all want our neighbors to be honest and our spouses to be faithful. But yet what we find is that the goodness that we desire is so woefully missing in the world and even worse, woefully missing in our lives. And so the people of the church of Rome recognized the brokenness in the world out there and the brokenness in in their lives in, in here. And they were searching for answers. And where were they trained to look? To the law to the law of God, the perfect law of God. They looked to the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, what they would call the Torah, and they thought in their mind, if I just keep the law perfectly, then maybe I'll experience the salvation that my soul wants and longs for. What Paul has been arguing, and we've seen it in the two short short chapters, we studied chapter 6 and 7, but it's all throughout Romans and all throughout the New Testament, is that the law was never designed to save us. No, what he's going to prove to us today is where the law fails, Christ prevails. The law was never designed to save us, it was simply designed to expose to us our need to be saved. Paul had been saying a lot of things about the law, and some may conclude, well, because the law has awakened sin within me, maybe the law is a problem. Maybe if we do away with the law, everything will be okay. So he wants to take up two questions that might be on your heart and certainly were on the hearts of his readers. The first question he wants to take up is, is the law sinful? Look at what he says in verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known that what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, again, he says this phrase, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He starts with this rhetorical question, and Paul is brilliant this way. This is how he advances his argument. He posits a question that he knows is in his reader's heart and mind. And he says in verse number seven, the question, is the law sin or is the law sinful? Is the law the problem? Should we just eradicate the law? And Paul answers, by no means is the law the problem. No, the real problem is the sinful nature that was already in you and in me that the law simply revealed. And notice what he says in verse number nine. I once was alive apart from the law. What he means by that is that before the law was introduced, I was a sinner, but I didn't know it. There was a a gleeful ignorance that I didn't realize I was violating God's law. But then when the law comes in, it just awakens to me, reveals to me how woefully sinful I am. And so he uses an example going back up to verse number seven. And here's the example he uses. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now he's referring to the Ten Commandments. And what Paul is trying to argue is that with each one of those commandments, as they are introduced, it strikes a death blow to my own righteousness apart from Christ. And it puts me guilty before a holy God. Now, I know that this isn't rainbows and ice cream that I'm talking about. But I have to give you the bad news before I can give you the good news. And here's the bad news. If God just simply judged us on the Ten Commandments, who of us could pass it? If we stood before a holy God and he, and he said to us, my commandment says, you shall not steal. How many of us would be guilty of being a thief at some point in our lives? Stealing possessions, stealing hearts, stealing time a thief before God and before men in our own hearts. When God says you should not lust or covet another man's wife, you shouldn't covet or lust after something else or someone else that is not yours. You shouldn't have jealousy in your heart. Which one of us could pass even that commandment? No, what Paul is getting at is not only could I not pass the commandments, I couldn't get past one, thou shalt not covet. If we were to stand before God and he were to say, I've commanded you not to use my name in vain, which one of us could even pass that? None of us, according to Paul, could uphold the law, but none of us could uphold any part of it. And why is it? It's because of our fleshly, sinful nature. Now notice the argument of Paul. He says that I wasn't going to covet Or at least I wasn't aware of covetousness until the law came. But notice what happens. When the law came and said that I should not covet, you shall not covet, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now here is Paul reminding us of what we all know. If you want somebody to do something, simply tell them not to do it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody in here by the show of hands ever raised a teenager before? Show me your hands. You know what I'm talking about. I'm in the throes of raising teenagers now or preteens now. So if you have not prayed for me lately, pray for a brother. But here's the reality. Part of what it means to be a teenager, but not just a teenager, part of what Paul is arguing it means to be a human being is to be told not to do something and then to turn around and Do it. You tell somebody, don't look at that. And what are they going to do? Look at it. You tell somebody, don't say that. And what are they going to be tempted to do? Say it. And why is it? It's because what Satan did and sin did to Paul, it does to all of us. Look at what it says, verse number eight sin seizing an opportunity. That word opportunity in the Greek is a military word. It means to set up an operation base or to rally the troops in one place with one mission. So as soon as... You are introduced to a commandment of God. Sin sets up an operation. Demonic forces come and try to operate against you. And internal sin is awakened within you, desiring to do the very opposite of what God has commanded of you. Paul recognizes this, and he says it twice. Verse number 11, he says it again. For sin seizing the opportunity deceived me and through it did what? It killed me. Notice what he says in verse number nine, that when sin came alive, I died. My friends, that is the reality of sin. I don't care what sin it is in your life. It may look cute for a moment. You may feel like you're getting away with it for a season. It may look like you're winning and you're having fun in the movies, in the music, in TV, but the reality is is that sin has a payday and the wages of sin is death. Eventually and always, sin wins in your life. Don't be deceived, Paul says. When sin is alive, I, you, we die. And we can play a game of deception all we want, but sin is deceiving to us. But what is even worse is when we're presented with the truth and we deceive ourselves. Today, don't be surprised if everything within your flesh wants to reject or not even listen to what the scripture is saying. Don't be surprised if you think this is a great message for the person sitting next to me. But make no mistake about it, God brought you here because he knew that you and I needed this message because Paul is relating as a representative for all of humanity and our struggle with sin. And praise God, for some people, there's immediate freedom and deliverance upon salvation. But for others, as we will see, the struggle is real, but there is a promise of deliverance. So Paul says that sin killed me. So that brings up a second question. But before we get to the second question, what's the verdict on the first? Is the law sin? The answer from Paul is an emphatic what? No. Look at verse number 12. For the commandment is what? Holy and righteous and good. All throughout Scripture, this is what the psalmists repeat again and again and again that the law is perfect, holy, righteous, good, read Psalm 119. It is one of the most uh, wonderful poems in all of human history to the beauty of the word of God, his laws, his statutes, his precepts. Or if you want an abridged version, go to Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, and we'll see that the law of God is Is pure that the commandments are righteous, that his statutes are holy, that they are good, and that they produce within us righteousness that is appealing and attractive to God. And so that brings up another question then. If the law, if the uh, sin rather, kills me, is the law death? Look at verse number 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Was it the law that brought death to me? Is the law death? He goes on to say, by no means. It was sin producing death in in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure, for we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And I wish I had three more hours because what Paul has given us here takes time to unpack, but I will be as efficient as possible. What Paul says is that the law is good, but I tend to take good laws and do bad things with them. And that is true throughout human history. Let me give you a natural example. How many think that freedom of speech is a good thing? How many praise God you live in a country that protects freedom of speech? If you like to speak your mind, you need to be raising your hand right now. If you're the type of person that likes to say what you think, you need to praise God that freedom of speech is available. Freedom of speech, we would all agree, is a good, good thing. We fight for it. We don't like when it's taken from us because we affirm its virtue. But think about this good law and how many bad and evil and hateful and mean things have been said under the guise of freedom of speech. This is the human condition. We take good things, and because of our sinful nature, we do bad things with them. And Paul saw this within himself. That Every good law that God gave, he abused it. Every freedom, every liberty, every act of mercy, he abused it again and again and again. And God kept giving laws. And why did God keep giving law? To save him? No, to expose to him his need to be saved. The reason why God has given the law is to expose to us our need for salvation. But he goes on to say something that is profound. He says, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, he wants sin to be shown to be sin. What is sin? It is any lack of conformity to the character of God and the commands of God. There's no point in you and I debating It's not about what I prefer or what you prefer. God God is the arbitrator between you and me. You and I are on the same moral plane, so we can debate all we want, but there is one who is on a higher moral plane than you and I, and that is the creator of heaven and earth, the only holy and righteous one in all of the universe. It is God, and he has revealed his commandments. He has revealed his law, his perfect and pure law, and everything that is an affront to that is sin, whether I like it or not, or whether you like it or not. But not only does the law expose sin to be sin, he goes on to say through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What Paul says is that not only did the law show me that I was a sinner, but it showed me how much of a sinner I was, that I am a sinner beyond measure, that my thoughts are continually sinful, and my actions are continually sinful. And here's the game that we play. When we are sinners, we know how to put on a show for the crowd. When you're a sinner, you know how to play the the good boy or the good girl for a short amount of time in public, but God sees in private. You know, there's a saying that's been floating around for a while in my generation, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. How many have ever heard that before? And that is true. Let's concede this for a moment. Let's concede that we can't judge one another, but only God can judge us. That should be the most scary thought that any of us have because you would hope that I was your judge because the only thing I could judge is what you present to me in public. But God doesn't just see me or you in public. The most frightening thing is that he sees us in public and in private. And he doesn't just see us in public and in private, he sees our hearts and he sees our thoughts. God knows our lies before we tell them. He knows our lust before we act upon them. He knows our greed that no one else would acknowledge. He knows our sinful desires and tendencies that yet have yet to be uncovered or even caught. I'm not a sinner because you found me guilty. I'm a sinner because the law of God finds me guilty. And what Paul says is the more I look at the law, the more of a weight it is to me, the more I realize that I'm an immeasurable sinner. I have a sin debt that I cannot repay. And what those people and that baptismal were saying today is that at some point in their life, they realize I cannot fix me. The problem and not be fixed by the perpetrator. Paul goes on to say these powerful and poetic words that follow where again, I think we all are gonna find ourselves in Paul, in his life. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Anybody ever been there before? I don't understand why I act the way that I do. He says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Are you following his argument? Have you been there before? Have you been at a place where there were things that you said, I'm never gonna do that again. I'm gonna stop doing that. I'm gonna stop behaving this way or treating people like this or or acting this way or, or talking this way, only to find yourself doing it again and again and again, not able to control your anger or your lust or your appetites or desires. And that is because sin has dominion over us when it is alive within us. Or maybe flip the coin. Maybe it's not the bad things you don't want to do that you keep on doing. Are there good things that you want to do that you don't do? There's some men in here that say, man, I, I keep saying that I want to love my wife and express to her how much I appreciate her, but I, for some reason, can't do it. I keep stumbling over myself and, and not able to do it. There's parents in here who say, I want to be a better parent, but I, but I keep missing the mark, and I, and I just can't get it right. There's some people in here that desire to do good on the inside, but your actions, the members of your body, don't cooperate. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, so I find... It to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Here's what Paul just described to us, friends. He described a civil war that's happening on the inside of of us. You study war, you study any nation, you study uh, global history and you will find the worst wars for any nation are civil wars. Civil wars have a way of ripping a nation apart in a way that no external enemy could ever imagine. Think about it, in America, our civil war did more damage to us than any other external threat has ever been able to do uh, To us, And what is a civil war? A civil war is when two parties who should be getting along turn on one another. And what Paul is saying is that my inner being should be getting along and cooperating with the members of my body. But yet there's a war happening where the things that I want to do, I don't do. Or the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And there seems to be a war within me. And if you've ever been addicted... Or have you ever been overwhelmed by emotions and feelings and desires that you did not want? You know exactly what Paul is talking about. And where does that leave us when the war is raging? It leaves us in verse 24: Wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. He felt overwhelmed by death. Henry David Thoreau said this: the mass. The masses of men live lives of quiet desperation. The masses of men live lives of quiet desperation. This is what Paul was saying, who can free me from this? Who can free me from the guilt, the anxiety, the depression, the the, uh, estrangement from God, the brokenness, the self-hatred? Who can free me from this? Is it the law? He'd already looked at the law. The law didn't help, but in verse 25, he gave us the answer. He says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. My friends, if ever there was a place to shout and thank God, it is right there. What's the answer to the war that's going on within me? It's not more law. It's not more commandment. Pastor, what I need is to know where grace can be found, where salvation can be found, where mercy can be found. Well, the apostle tells us, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is where salvation is found. That is where freedom is found. And that is why, my friends. Person after person today stood before you declaring in one unified voice, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Christ has come and rescued me. Thank God for his blood. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God that Jesus Christ sets us free. In whom the Son of Man has set free is free indeed. There's only one question. The question is not whether or not the war is raging in all of us. The question is, do you want freedom? And if you want freedom, it can be yours today. The Apostle Paul offers us freedom through Christ from the war that rages within. The only one, my friends, that can set us free and give us new life is Christ and Christ alone. Can you stand with me today? Oftentimes I have to remind myself that the gospel is not a philosophy to be debated. It's not a courtroom drama to be decided. It is good news to be accepted. So today I extend to you not just good news, but the best news ever. You can be free. And there's two types of people in this room. Either you have never accepted Christ as Lord, and today after I pray, there will be friends here ready to receive you so that you too can be baptized and declare that Christ is mine and I am his. Or you can stop at the uh, Connect desk, or if you're watching online, you can type Connect, but don't get this close to freedom and salvation and healing and just walk away to the same brokenness and war that you came in with. The second type of person is the person who has accepted Christ and our job is to tell the world about Jesus until all have heard, until Christ returns. It's a joy to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us about the stains on our soul Tell us about the sickness of our hearts so that you might offer us the healing that we so desperately long for. Lord, I pray that today, and if there is any sense of conviction or condemnation that's here, that it wouldn't be because of self-righteousness. None of us are righteous. But it would simply be because the law has revealed to us our sinfulness. Lord, I also pray that any sense of conviction would be overwhelmed by hope the hope that is found in the finished work of Christ. Lord, we all struggle and we all need a savior. Thank you for sending Jesus on the greatest rescue mission that humanity has ever known. Thank you for saving us. And thank you, the Lord, for our friends who today will mark the rest of their lives, the greatest day of their lives, the day that they declare that Christ is Lord. It's in your mighty and matchless name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen and amen. How many are grateful for Jesus? Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself to us today.